Women have played a significant role in our society and culture through time. So let's take a look at the history from the women's side. I'm your host, Brittany, and welcome to Her Story Sessions. I found the CNN docuseries First Ladies especially helpful for this episode and highly recommend watching it if you'd like to know more. It's currently available on HBO Max. White House hostess, a leader in D.C. social circles, fashion icon, social issues advocate, campaigner, representative, role model. All of these terms have been attached to a first lady at one point or another. For someone who is not elected and not officially appointed, they can hold a lot of influence in their own way. Each lady that has held this role has put her own personal touch on it, some changing how the position was viewed in significant ways and setting a new precedent for their future successors. We all know and follow what the First Ladies are doing just as much as the President. What exactly does the First Lady do? What's her actual role there? This Her Story session is all about the most influential women in the White House, the woman closest to the President, the First Lady. The role of the First Lady is not addressed in the Constitution, and there was no generally accepted term for the President's wife when the country was newly formed. There was no definitive moment for when the term and the role came to existence either. Lacking anything else to call her, Martha Washington was referred to as Lady Washington as a sign of respect borrowed from the British royalty traditions. Abigail Adams and Dolly Madison were also referred to as ladies. Others would state their own preferences, such as Mrs. President or Mrs. Presidentress. There is a mention in a newspaper article written by a Mrs. Sigourney about Martha Washington that mentions the term First Lady. She wrote in a memoir about her, the First Lady of the Nation still preserved the habits of early life. Indulging in no indolence, she left the pillow at dawn and after breakfast retired to her chamber for an hour to study of the scriptures and devotion. She was talking about how she continued her life normally after the presidency. When Dolly Madison died, President Zachary Taylor gave her eulogy and supposedly referred to as the First Lady of Our Land, but there's not any written proof for this. When it was the spouse of the president, Mrs. President or Presidentress worked well enough. But when James Buchanan, a bachelor, took office, he asked his niece Harriet Lane to take on the role of the White House hostess, and so the terms didn't really work so well. Leslie's illustrated newspaper chose to use the term First Lady of the White House for her. Several other ladies were also occasionally referred to as First Lady of the Land or as First Lady of the Republic. In the beginning of the 1900s, the term gradually shortened with the First Lady of the Land and just First Lady being used interchangeably. But in the 20s, the shortened version began to be favored more and then rose exponentially when Eleanor Roosevelt arrived at the White House becoming the term we use today, and applied retroactively to all of the women who have held this position before her. Although the First Lady is almost always the wife of a president, there were several cases in which they weren't, such as with Harriet Lane, who I just mentioned. A few presidents were unmarried, or their wife was unwilling or unable to fulfill those duties. Thomas Jefferson was a widower by the time he took office, so his daughter Martha Jefferson Randolph sometimes filled in, but when she couldn't do it, Dolly Madison, whose husband was Secretary of State at the time, took on the role, and then she did it again when her husband became president after Jefferson. Jackson also had two women play hostess, his daughter-in-law Sarah York Jackson and niece Emily Donaldson. Several other presidents had their daughters or daughters-in-law take this position, and Grover Cleveland had his sister Rose Cleveland take it. 
In all, there were at least 13 women acting as first lady for a president they were not married to. Originally, the first lady served as hostess to the president's house, were only in charge of anything domestic within the house, and appearing at social functions. Her role steadily grew, and as both advocate and ceremonial representative were added, Edith Roosevelt became the first lady to have a federally hired social secretary. Lou Hoover hired additional secretaries with her own money, growing the first lady's staff. Then Eleanor Roosevelt then added a personal secretary for herself, and Jackie Kennedy, the first press secretary. Then there were appointment secretaries, and finally, with Rosalind Carter, a chief of staff, completed the full staff for the office of the First Lady. These staff members helped her fulfill her roles on behalf of the president, organizing social and ceremonial events at the White House, and in her own projects and initiatives. First ladies have been advocates for social issues going way back, and now it's custom that they have at least one issue they advocate for. They've always held sway over the president, as someone in a close relationship with them, of course, would. Some first ladies have given advice to their husbands on political matters and pushed them on certain legislations, especially if they are related to the cause that she advocated for. Many first ladies have received criticism for getting too involved in the politics of the president. That goes all the way back to Abigail Adams, who would actively take part in the debate over whether political parties should be formed or not, and did not shy away from telling her husband who she saw as an enemy to him. Because of this, critics would sarcastically refer to her as Mrs. President. Edith Wilson monitored all of her husband's visitors and correspondence after he had a stroke, and critics then complained of a petticoat government. She claimed she was only watching over her husband's recovery and not deciding on anything herself, but historians aren't sure which is true today. While each first lady has put her own personal touch on the office, there are a few that made great impacts on the role of the first lady that affected their successors and changed how we view her to this day. No one had more of an impact than Eleanor Roosevelt did. She entered the White House in 1933 and was there for 12 years. The two-term limit wasn't in place until after FDR. Before that, she was on 17 reform boards in the New York State and had her own career as an activist and journalist. She was an advocate for the equality of all people and was vocal about it her entire life and used her position and power to further as many causes as she could. She started right away for women, deciding to hold her own press conferences, something that had never been done by a first lady before, and allowing only women to attend. This forced newspapers that had previously only hired men to hire women journalists if they wanted coverage on her press conferences. Civil rights were also a major issue for her, and she especially wanted to end segregation. She regularly invited civil rights leaders to the White House. Once, when attending a civil rights meeting in Alabama, which was segregated, of course, she was told she couldn't sit on the black side, so she put a chair directly in the middle of the aisle between the whites and blacks and sat there for the entire meeting. She so openly spoke out against lynchings and segregation that the Ku Klux Klan put a 25,000 bounty on her head. When the black singer Marian Anderson was denied performing at a venue owned by the Daughters of the American Revolution, which Eleanor belonged to, Eleanor resigned from the organization and arranged for Miss Anderson to perform at the Lincoln Memorial. It was the first desegregated public event to ever happen and had a massive turnout. The FBI, ran by J. Edgar Hoover, who did not like her, kept a file on her, fearing she might be a communist because of her beliefs in equal rights. 
She was also active in the public eye all the time, speaking on the radio on a regular basis, writing in her daily column, My Day, and when she first came to the White House, which was during the Great Depression, she asked the public to write to her to let her know what was happening in the country and wanted to know how she could help the citizens. She received more than 300,000 letters in her first four months there. She did her best to help where she could and advocated for housing reform because of some of these, and eventually influenced legislation on it. She also goes on tour and appears in place of FDR a lot, serving as his eyes and his legs. She was a wonderful asset to him for this, and he respected her opinions, taking her advice and taking it to the cabinet meetings. She kept up with all of this during World War II years. She spoke to the nation on the radio after Pearl Harbor and spoke about her four sons all serving in the military, sympathizing with all of the women across the nation worrying about their family members. She traveled during the war, visited the wounded, ate and talked with soldiers, advocated to end segregation in the military, and wrote to hundreds of family members on behalf of the soldiers. After FDR's death, Truman asked her to be a delegate in the newly formed United Nations, where she was unanimously elected chair of the U.S. Subcommittee and helped form the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a huge step in her lifelong campaign for equal rights for all. Another well-remembered lady is, of course, Jackie Kennedy. She was only 31 years old when JFK took office and was viewed as an elegant, glamorous, and fashionable lady. She was also the only one to have a baby between the election and the inauguration. She was actually still recovering from the C-section on Inauguration Day, which left her exhausted, and the White House doctor gave her Dexedrine to get through all of the balls and celebrations they were expected to attend, although she still didn't make it through all of them, and ended up going back to the White House alone while JFK went on to several more parties. This was the first night of his womanizing while in the office, something Jackie was well aware of, but would never acknowledge. She actually became aware of his affairs while they were campaigning and wanted to divorce him then, but at the time, divorce would have ruined his campaign and career, so she stayed. As for the children, Jackie wanted to keep their lives private, away from the media. But JFK knew the appeal pictures of them in the press would have, having grown up in front of cameras himself. This was something they couldn't agree on. The famous picture of John Jr. under the Resolute desk was actually taken while Jackie was away and made her furious later on. They ended up having another son while in office, baby Patrick, but he unfortunately didn't live. This was a very rough time for them. In her first lady duties, she remodeled the White House to a more classic style and collects back former president's furniture, a move that was widely approved by much of the public. Her work is what eventually led to the official designation of a museum for the mansion. She traveled with JFK, too, and impressed foreign leaders, leading to successful trips. When they traveled to France to meet the French president, he was impressed with how much she knew about the French history and that she talked to him about it, all in fluent French. After the trip, JFK said in a speech, I am the man that accompanied Jacqueline Kennedy to Paris, and I've enjoyed it. She became a major diplomacy asset to him after that. Later, when she went along to the Soviet Union, Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, was very happy that she was there and spent a lot of time talking to her instead. She was important to JFK during the Cuban Missile Crisis, offering advice and support, and later said that's when she felt closest to him. After the crisis was over, JFK gave Tiffany silver calendars marked with the 13 most crucial days to his closest advisors, and Jackie was surprised to receive one also. It was something that was important to her, and she treasured it for the rest of her life. 
Then came that fateful day in Texas. When she later recounted it, she said she thought it was backfire from a car when she first heard the shots. She turned to ask JFK about it, and that's when she saw he had been shot. She tried to crawl out of the car, but Secret Service pushed her back in, and she stayed down knowing her husband was dead next to her. At the hospital, when she got a few moments alone with him, she put her wedding ring in with him, wanting to give him something of hers. Later, when she was asked if she wanted to change, she refused, saying, I want them to see what they've done to Jack. Her and her bloodstained pink outfit became a famous image after that. At the funeral, she marched behind the casket, something the Secret Service didn't want her to do because of the risk. But she did it anyway, along with Bobby Kennedy and other world leaders, including the newly sworn-in President Johnson. After that, she worked very hard to craft the legacy of her husband, and on the last night of the White House, she wrote to Khrushchev, urging him to continue with the peace talks with the U.S. Lady Bird Johnson was there the day JFK was killed. She kept an audio diary each day and recorded that day as looking like it would be a beautiful sunny day at the beginning of it. In it, she talks of trying to comfort Jackie in the hospital, and she's the one that asked Jackie if she would like someone to help her change. After that day, she was suddenly in the role of First Lady. Very aware of how different her and her husband were from the Kennedys and the people in that administration, she said, I felt I was suddenly thrust on stage for a role I never rehearsed. It was something she never expected, nor wanted, and believed that she would either remain the second lady or go home after the next election. But she stepped into the role and did great work while there. Like many other first ladies, she was an integral partner to the president. She was always bluntly honest with him and became an essential counterweight to his harshness. LBJ would use his height and temper to his advantage to coerce and scare others into getting his way, but she would always come along right behind him to smooth things over with the person and reassure them. And when it comes time for elections, she writes him a letter urging him to run for his first full term. She campaigned in eight states for him, three of which voted for Lyndon Johnson. After having grown up in the South and seeing the racism and segregation there, she openly pushed for civil rights and went on a whistle-stop campaign to push for them. She faced threats from the KKK for this. She was also an advocate for Head Start, the preschool program for low-income families. She was passionate about environmentalism, though. She built parks and recreational area in D.C., setting an example for other cities, and helping with the Highway Beautification Act, the first openly partnered legislation piece by the President and the First Lady. This law is why our highways are not cluttered with billboards today. The Vietnam War was rough for her, and she especially was upset after a meeting with Eartha Kitt. They were supposed to have a meeting to talk about the childhood delinquency and keeping children in school, but Kit confronted her about black and poor young men being drafted more than others, and Lady Bird felt helpless and unable to do anything about it. She also saw her daughters worrying for their husbands while they were gone, and the toll the war was taking on her husband. She urged him not to run again, and was relieved when he announced he would not. She kept working to protect the environment after leaving the White House. Moving into the 80s, we see Nancy Reagan step into the first ladyship. Although she insisted she did not have much influence on her husband's decisions, many thought she was the power player of the couple, and before she left the White House, the New York Times wrote she had, quote, expanded the job of first lady into a sort of associate presidency. She did work behind the scenes quite a bit on the phone, and seemed to be a very formidable lady that you did not want to cross. 
To the public, she was seen as a good traditional wife and became known for the gaze, an unblinking, doe-eyed look that she would give her husband at public events. Some critics dismissed this as stage work, a way to curry favor. She was highly criticized many times, writing in her memoirs, I found out the hard way, nothing, nothing prepares you for being a first lady. This was a woman who had to learn to navigate high society at a very young age, when her mother married into a higher social circle when she was eight. She was first criticized for spending money to remodel the White House, even though she raised funds through private donors to pay for it. Then, just a few months into the presidency, Ronald was shot on May 30th, 1981. Thankfully, it wasn't fatal, and he recovered, but the event had her terrified and confused when it happened. This had an impact on her for a long time. She started talking to an astrologer, a secret kept by her inner circle for a long time. This astrologer would give her advice on when Ronald should or shouldn't travel, among other things. Nancy setting his schedule was one of the things she was criticized for also. The media continued to be harsh on her, and she later said, Everything I did or said was instantly open to criticism. My clothes, my friends, my taste in decorating, the way I looked at my husband. These stories not only hurt, they made me damn mad. So she changed tactics, and at a function she made fun of herself in a speech and took on activism, beginning her campaign against drug use called Just Say No. This worked, and her popularity went up. In 1985, at a Geneva meeting with Soviet leaders, the first one since the beginning of the Cold War, she suggested that Reagan and Gorbachev take a walk together to the meeting, and they came to friendly terms on this walk, making a huge progression on peace talks during that. On another trip to Moscow, she pitched the idea that she and Ronald walk to a nearby park from where they were staying. Their security detail tried to talk her out of it, stating it was a risk and they couldn't guarantee her protection if they did. She decided they would do it anyway and went out to where the Russian citizens could see them and it ended up being a great public relations move for the trip. Nancy had constant disagreements with the president's chief of staff and man named Don Regan. She did not like him and eventually pressured him to leave his job. In response, he revealed her secret about the astrologer, starting a scandal. She did not apologize for it, and she said she did it for the protection of her husband. She was always watching out for her husband regarding his staff. She expected full dedication and loyalty to the president's visions and policies and made it known if she was displeased. When they left the White House, several writers were with them on the Air Force One to write a final collaboration report, and it was Nancy, not Ronald, that was with them to oversee the whole report. When Bill Clinton ran for president, it was obvious that Hillary, who had her own law background, was an important advisor to him. She campaigned for him under the phrase, Team Clinton, elect him and get me. When he won and they moved into the White House, she put her office in the West Wing rather than keeping it in the traditional East Wing office. Bill then appoints her to chair the Health Care Reform Committee. She faced attacks for this, with those opposed stating that the First Lady shouldn't make policy. She had to testify on the health care reform as a primary witness in front of Congress, becoming the First Lady to do so. The Republicans ultimately defeated her health care plan. She pushed and pleaded to at least get the children covered, resulting in the Children's Health Insurance Act, which still covers millions of kids today. Of course, chairing the health care reform wasn't the only thing that she faced criticism for. There were constant scandals about her in the news, but no charge was ever proven. 
She was then criticized for defending her husband when he was accused of an affair, and she believed him when he denied it because she had seen so many untrue stories in the media already. She only found out the truth on the same day Bill spoke to the country and admitted it, and then when she chose to stay anyway, she faced more criticism for that, and it was an issue that continued to come up long after Bill's presidency was over. In 1995, she went to Beijing to speak at the United Nations World Conference on Women. This was controversial with it being seen as a threat risk, and several wanted her to soften her remarks when she spoke, fearing how the Chinese would take it. She did not, of course, soften her remarks, but argued against the abuse of women all around the world, in China included, and stated her beliefs that issues women and girls face go ignored and unresolved. At the end, she stated, If there is one message that echoes forth from this conference, let it be that human rights are women's rights, and that women's rights are human rights, once and for all. For years, when she traveled, women all over the world would tell her they had heard her speech from that conference, and it's made an impact on women's rights movements today. After she left the role of the First Lady, she served as New York State Senator, then Secretary of State under Barack Obama, and then running as a Democratic nominee in the 2016 election. While Hillary was serving as Secretary of State, we had Michelle Obama as the First Lady. She holds several firsts for the office, from being the first Black First Lady to being the first to use social media. The presidential election is also the first time she publicly helped her husband campaign, but did have influence behind the scenes for other offices he had. They also received a security detail earlier than any other candidate in history. There were fears for their family because so many black leaders in the past have been assassinated. Michelle was one of the people who would put people at ease and assure them that everything would be okay. She was criticized more closely and harshly than possibly any other lady in recent history from wearing sleeveless outfits, for fist bumping Barack on stage, and to those that said she looked like a man. Fox News even referred to as Barack's baby mama. When they were first campaigning, she said she was proud of her country for the first time in her adult life, and many people took offense to this. She intended it as a statement on how hard being black in this country can be, and that she thought we were beginning to move past that and change. It was not taken as she is intended, and the media was harsh towards her. She had to learn to change the way she talked and used her hand motions to essentially dial back the passion she had been showing to avoid the angry black woman stereotype. But after everything, she made a difference and helped to get her husband elected. When she first came in, she would say she was mom-in-chief, that her girls were her first priority. As a woman with a professional career in law before, it was her way of saying that she wasn't there to make policy, while also breaking apart the negative assumptions of black mothers. At her husband's first address to the Congress, she watched and in her memoirs talks about how she remembers looking across a sea of whiteness and maleness and the obstinate looks and body language of the Republicans. It was like they wanted Barack to fail. The next day, the media is talking about her sleeveless outfit, criticizing her for it. This is far from the first time a sleeveless dress has been worn by a first lady. Jackie Kennedy, for one, was praised for completely changing the traditional look of the first lady and looked upon in her sleeveless outfits as a fashion icon. When Michelle started the Let's Move campaign advocating for children to eat healthier, it was something that she chose because it was in line with health care reforms that the president was working on. It was also supposed to be an issue that wasn't controversial, that could be viewed favorably by everyone. But in the very partisan, polarized political world we were entering, even that came under attack. 
She supported legislation that would ensure healthier lunch options in schools, and the right wing and the lobbyists pushed back. They argued that the parents shouldn't get to decide this, that the government has no right to tell them what to eat, and the food industry doubled down on spending and lobbying to undermine the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, her first legislation win. Then the attacks became much more personal against her and against her family. Much of the criticism probably stems from racist views, and she faced blatant racism online constantly. Her take was to try to look past it, although it wasn't easy for her. She worried constantly for her family, and the misinformation the birther movement was spreading was something she understood was very dangerous to her family. Someone even shot towards the White House, and a bullet went into one of the windows of the White House. It's bulletproof and didn't break, but Sasha and Michelle's mother were inside. She had to trust the Secret Service to protect her family. She said she knew it was better for all to not acknowledge the hate or dwell on the risk. She couldn't let them scare her and her family into going away. After the second term started, she attended a funeral for a 15-year-old girl that had performed at the inauguration events and was a victim of gun violence. This had a deep impact on her and had her, who grew up on the south side of Chicago, thinking about how that could have been her at any time while she was growing up. Then, when the Sandy Hook shootings happenings and the legislation put forward by the president for more gun control, both bills were defeated in Congress although 90% of the public was for the bills. So Michelle took up advocating against it, using her platform to talk about gun violence and spending time with young people affected by it. She also advocated for going to college with the Reach Higher campaign, pressing for the idea that children should be given the opportunity to continue their education regardless of their background. She really wanted everyone to have the same chances she had and talked about how she was told that she would never go to Princeton. In the second term, she becomes more open about talking about racism and doubles down on the hope message, telling young African Americans to not give up, to push on, and to prove that they are better than what others may think of them. When they left the White House, Barack commended her on how well she took on the role of the First Lady in one of his speeches. She became a role model and a symbol of hope for kids all across the country during those eight years. At the time of recording, Jill Biden has just recently passed the 100-day mark, and so far, she was traveling quite a bit, making herself visible and coordinating with the presidential administration on issues. For her, she wants to use the role as a way to accomplish the things she wants to do and not necessarily worry about filling a traditional role or doing anything drastically new. We'll see with time what type of first lady she turns out to be, but so far, she's already proven to be a caring, compassionate one. These first ladies are all proof of how much impact a woman can have in the White House, and even though they are on an unofficial, unelected, unpaid role, what is possible to accomplish there and how they can affect change just as well as the president can. That's all for today. Thank you for attending this Her Story session. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Her Story Session, and make sure to click follow for more episodes.